In 2010, Qatar won the bid to host the 2022 FIFA World Cup, enticing millions of migrant workers from South Asia to the country to build key infrastructure, hotels, and stadiums. But over the last decade, thousands of those migrant workers have died on construction sites, while many more allege systematic, brutal mistreatment and exploitation under the watch of individual employers and Qatari officials. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. In this episode, football writer Miguel Delaney speaks with veteran journalist Pete Patterson about the conditions migrant workers face in Qatar, the government's role in allowing labor and human rights violations to continue even after promised labor reforms, and how football teams and sponsors can pressure Qatari officials to improve labor conditions for migrant workers. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, my name is Miguel Delaney. I'm the chief football writer for The Independent, uh, and I've covered a lot of these issues over the past few years, uh, but probably pales next to the coverage that uh, Pete Patterson has done. He's been a journalist who's worked with the issue since 2013. Uh, so good to speak to you, Pete. Thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you now. Well, Pete, to kick things off, your recent investigative report suggests that more than 6,500 migrant workers have died in Qatar since the country won the bid to host the 2022 World Cup. Why are migrant workers in Qatar dying? Why are they treated so poorly by their employers and by the government? And what role does the government of Qatar play in allowing these deaths to happen? Let me try and answer that question by talking about the life and the death of a young Nepali worker called Rupchandra Rumba. Rumba, 24 years old, went to Qatar to work as a construction worker, and he was working on one of the new World Cup stadiums. One night after his shift, he went home to his labor camp and he went to sleep. And in the morning, he was woke up struggling to breathe. His co-worker said he was gasping for breath. They called an ambulance. He was taken to hospital and he died. And I visited Rumba's wife in her small room on the edge of Kathmandu soon after his death. And she couldn't understand why her husband, just 24 years old, fit and healthy, according to her, had died. And she said her six-year-old son, their six-year-old son, kept asking one question, where's my dad? And it's important we remember the stories of these individual workers who make up this huge number of workers. As you mentioned, 6,500 workers from South Asia have died in the last 10 years, because this is really a story of human tragedy. And Rumba's story actually tells a much bigger story because I looked at his death certificate and on the death certificate, it said he died from cardiorespiratory failure due to natural causes. And the vast majority of workers who are dying in Qatar at the moment, are their deaths are classified as natural causes, very similar to Rupchandra Rumba's death. The problem is that classification is not medically significant. What it effectively says is uh, he died because he's dead. It doesn't explain the underlying causes of the, of the death. And that's why this issue is so important, because hundreds, in fact, thousands of workers are dying in Qatar from what are essentially sudden and unexplained causes, uh, very similar to the way Rupchandra died. And the real issue here is that in 2014, lawyers representing the Qatar government recommended to the government that, number one, it investigate the causes of these deaths, and number two, 
it insists on an autopsy for every sudden and unexplained death. And the Qatar government have done neither. I suppose absolutely key to that, and as you say, the inaction of Qatar and this growing sphere of international pressure, it feels like, I mean, well, you don't want to obviously kind of limit the scope of this story. It feels, it feels like you actually need to personalize it to make people realize, because I think over the past decade, 12 years, since Qatar has really been awarded the World Cup, when people hear issues like human rights, it can still be a little bit abstract for people. That's something they don't realize is as, as urgent uh, as, as we're talking here until you actually hear personal stories that, that really bring home what is actually happening. Yeah, I couldn't agree more to you. And I've had, uh, I would say, the privilege of meeting hundreds of workers who have worked in Qatar. I used to be based in Nepal. I also interviewed many of them in Nepal. And it's those personal stories of death, of injury, of being cheated, of being unpaid or paid very low wages that bring home the reality of life in Qatar for these workers. Now, I should say, not every worker is cheated. Not every worker gets very low wages. Not every worker lives in very squalid accommodation. But many, many of them do. And these are the conditions of people who are building the infrastructure and in some cases a stadium for the 2022 World Cup. I suppose in the wake of your recent report and a lot of the writing you've done, uh, the Human Rights Foundation recently sent letters to Coca-Cola, Adidas, Budweiser, Visa, all the main World Cup sponsors, asking them to use their leverage and request from the Qatari government to implement labour reforms they promised and which would improve migrant workers' rights. Uh, do you think these calls from human rights groups to companies make a difference? Has the Qatari government ever made a reform based on pressure from the business world? Well, using that specific example of uh, Human Rights Foundation writing to sponsors, the, the answer is apparently not, because I understand it. Uh, only one of the sponsors responded to the HRF, and, and I, in various times, have also written to World Cup sponsors and received very limited responses. That's not to say that the sponsors are not uh, entirely disengaged from this issue. I know Adidas and Coca-Cola have sat on the FIFA Human Rights Advisory Board. But it's really important to realize that the World Cup is vital to these sponsors. There's very few mega sporting events that sponsors can, big major companies can sponsor. And uh, the sponsors are also vital to the, to the World Cup, you know, providing you know, huge amounts of, of money. And so in theory, the sponsors should have a huge amount of leverage. Uh, I believe they do, but they are not using it um, to demand uh, improvements to workers' conditions. And, and an issue that would be of interest to HRF uh, audience is that recently uh, some of the big sponsors, and in fact partners, partners are the kind of top tier level of sponsors, have come from authoritarian regimes. So uh, Qatar, uh, companies in Qatar, China, and Russia are now sponsors and partners of FIFA. And I think those companies are even less likely to demand changes and improvements to working conditions. Yeah, I mean, it does feel, obviously, as urgent and severe as the Qatari situation on its own is, it does feel also it's a bit of a kind of a, a microcosm or reflection of the wider issue in football, which is essentially the game's takeover, if not embrace, of, I suppose, a lot of questionable states, emirates, regimes, uh, and at, a, at the very top level, almost kind of a, a willingness to uh, 
to accept money or investment from wherever, reg- regardless of the questions. Yeah, we can see this type of sports washing in lots of examples, as you as you said with 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 Abu Dhabi. Uh, just now, we've had uh, a, a possible announcement of uh, a, a major boxing event in Saudi Arabia, and it's it's really important that uh, people of all types you know sports from sports officials and, and and sports associations down to sports fans uh, use their voice to uh, uh, speak up uh when this happens because too often it's it's the small people it's the people uh, uh, for, who are marginalized the people who are from the poorest backgrounds uh, who who suffer the most well, i mean I, so just as you mentioned there in terms of the small people as well it, do, it does feel with this entire issue, um, there was almost a bit of a parallel, or sorry, in terms of kind of the, uh, the question of sponsors responding and what happens next, it does feel there's a little bit of a parallel with, say, the European Super League issue that was in football, that, of course, is, is connected to all this, given some, some of what happened with Super League is actually a response of the kind of the inflation in football that has happened as a consequence of the, of, you know, the, the investment of some of these countries. But with that issue, so, so, so very quickly, sponsors started to stay, take note, and from what I've been told, put real pressure on some of the clubs, right up to Manchester United, Liverpool, uh, because of the amount of bad noise about the Super League and the amount of outright protest. And it was almost as if it cost across that threshold, because what, what everyone knew for so long that the Super League was kind of it was in the offing, uh, and it was always a, a kind of a, a problem that people didn't really like. It was only when it became a reality and there was proper noise about it that then it had an effect on sponsors. And it feels like this is maybe a similar point we're at with the Qatar World Cup, where there's a little bit of kind of of uh, bubbling protest now and noise, but it's 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 still a little bit easy, a bit too easy to evade. And it's almost like it feels like more pressure needs to build up from the game to actually get these sponsors to properly respond. Um, and just and connected to that, I suppose, um, why do you think the sponsors in particular have a, a, have a responsibility to speak out in this? I think sponsors have a responsibility to speak out because they are investing a huge amount into FIFA and into the World Cup, and they gain a huge amount out of FIFA and out of the World Cup. And therefore, they are closely tied to the whole event. And that brings with it certain obligations and certain issues that you shouldn't ignore. And that's why I think uh, sponsors, I think what's kind of happened is that with this World Cup in Qatar, FIFA have to some extent hidden behind Qatar. And the sponsors have to some extent hidden behind FIFA. And mm-hmm. I think they could and should be doing more to, to speak out on these issues. Yeah, it, it's very true, actually. And, it, and it's, it's one thing you note. I mean, I mean it, 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 in this situation, it does feel as well that, and I think this is exactly what you're getting at with some of the sponsors as well, that FIFA really has a significant lever to pull here. Uh, and, all, and also, given the way FIFA talks, it goes on all the time about its legacy, about improving the game. Yet, it probably couldn't have a clearer chance to leave a profound positive impact than causing drastic change in Qatar. And right now, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure about you. I, I can probably guess the answer. But from my perspective, it, 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 it doesn't, it's, it's not even a case that it feels like they're not realizing that or they're, they're not acting on that. It's as if they're just going to let it fritter away, that there's no consciousness of, of the power they have, that there's no willingness ready to pull that lever no in my experience fifa and the the fifa sponsors and partners have been 
very passive on the issue of workers' rights, right from the point that Qatar was awarded the World Cup. Some reforms have taken place in Qatar, but in my view, they have come about because of pressure from um, human rights groups and from the media. They have not come about by pressure from FIFA or sponsors. But also, hasn't there been a little bit of reporting lately that while there were kind of, um, there move, sorry, <clears throat> sorry, I actually had my vaccine two hours ago. So <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're safe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a slight reaction there. Sorry. So that'll have to be edited. It just suddenly kind of got a bit in my throat. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so, sorry. Just in relation to change as well. I mean, I was reading some from some recent reports that while there has been gestures towards changes, actual assessments have revealed that the Qatar government hasn't actually enacted any on any of them. Well, there have been there have been some changes, at least on paper, uh, two significant ones. One is uh, the dismantling, uh, the large, largely the dismantling of what's known as the kafala system. And the other is, is the introduction of a minimum wage. Now, just briefly to give a little bit of context, let me try and set out what are the main problems that workers have been facing in Qatar. And then and then it will make sense yeah. about where, where these reforms sit in relation to those problems. I mean, just briefly, if you're a young man, let's say in Nepal, and you want to get a job in Qatar, you cannot access that job yourself. You have to go through a recruitment agent and you have to pay that recruitment agent, let's say in the region of a thousand, possibly including cost one thousand five hundred dollars. Do you have that money in your pocket? No. So you have to borrow it. And so before you've even left your own country, you're deep in debt. Then you fly to Qatar. And as you arrive, the first thing that might happen is that your employer takes your passport. You also might find that the job you are promised and the salary you are promised is different to what you signed for. Your living conditions could be very harsh. There are some reasonable living accommodation for workers in Qatar, but but you know tens of thousands still live in very overcrowded dormitories with six, eight, ten men to a room in, in, in bunk beds. Um, uh, very squalid conditions. And then crucially, it's very common in Qatar for workers to receive low wages, often late wages, and in some cases, no wages at all. And, and this is not just in exceptional cases. I mean, just last year, Amnesty documented a, a case of lots of workers building a World Cup stadium who had not been paid for months. And so you might say, why, if you're a worker in these conditions, don't you just leave the job or leave the country? Well, under the Kafala system, which is, is, a, is a sponsorship system, uh, that has been in place um, for a long time, not just in Qatar, but in all of the Gulf states, workers cannot change their job or leave the country without their employer's permission. The Kafala system is a system under control, of control, and all the control over the workers sits in the hands of the employer. And just think of it from the perspective of an employer. If you know your worker cannot leave, what incentive is there to look after them, to respect their rights. Now, that's not to say that there are not good employers in Qatar. Of course there are. But the system that has been in place ever since Qatar was awarded the, the, the right to host the World Cup and before it, gives a disproportionate amount of power to the employer. And through that system, workers have been uh, victims of abuse and exploitation for years and years and years. Now, just last year, Qatar finally dismantled the kafala system and introduced a minimum wage. 
That's a positive step, and it's a credit to lots of organizations who have been pushing for that for a long time. But as you say, there are some problems with it. There are some concerns. Uh, The first one is, will these reforms actually be implemented? Workers can now change their job in Qatar, but it's a bureaucratic process. It can take time. And there there are certain loopholes that allow employers to put up hurdles to make it much more difficult for workers to change jobs. And the second point is, yes, a minimum wage has been introduced, but that minimum wage is a uh, thousand Qatari reels a month, which is about 275 US dollars. Um, uh, accommodation and food costs are included in that, but they are often a very poor quality, as I've already explained. Now, how is it possible that in the richest, one of the richest countries in the world, the minimum wage is $270 a month. That equates to about $1.30 an hour. And the really curious thing here is that these reforms have been championed by some of the world's biggest labor organizations, the International Labor Organization, the ILO, and the International Trade Union Confederation, a huge, huge trade union body. Why are these bodies praising a minimum wage of $1.30 an hour in one of the richest countries in the world? So, Yes, there have been reforms, but there are problems with the implementation and there are problems with how far these reforms have gone. I suppose when you stand back and when it's laid out like that, it does feel almost as as absurd as it is immoral, especially given the countless countries that have could have held the World Cup um, and, and the, 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 count, the, the countless different possible hosts or situations that it's actually taking place here, that, you know, this 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 super modern event with all its prestige and all its history is going to be, you know, taking place on a stage that's constructed with such questions around it. Well, one of the arguments that FIFA has always made is that, you know, the World Cup is going to kind of be a vehicle for reform and the legacy of the World Cup is going to be much uh, uh, better protection for workers. But I think that's, that's a pretty weak argument. These reforms have come in uh, they're too little and they're too late. Uh, almost all the stadiums and all the key World Cup infrastructure have already been built. So uh, whatever way you look at it, the World Cup has been built on this exploitative system. Whether this change from now forward, it's, it's, it's a wait and see. What I would say is that I don't think Qatar should receive a huge amount of praise for these reforms. I mean, they have mm. been... They have been, uh, 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 the system has been in place under the Qatar authorities for years and years and years. When you exploit someone for years, you don't get praise when you stop exploiting them. What you need to do is start a conversation about compensation and remediation for workers. Yeah. It's actually just, I'm almost thinking from a, from a highly personal perspective as well, because I'll, I'll be one of the journalists going there to report, and, and I think as an extension and necessity of that, not just reporting the football, but reporting the the circumstances and what's actually happening. But, I mean, and this is quite, this is such a severe question to ask of a World Cup. It's not the first time it's been asked about a World Cup, given given some previous hosts in throughout history. But is there not an element of, we should be deeply unsettled that, you know, potentially we're going to be using infrastructure or people will be staying in hotels that have been built on this system? Is that, I mean, it's, it's such a, an uncomfortable question, yet obviously such a fundamental and basic one given the, the entire context around this tournament. 
I, I'm poising before I answer because I agree with you. And I don't know what the response is to that. I almost feel it's down to individual people to make their own decision. Mm. Um, I, I think I think one way to look at it is that, is that you know this the the World Cup has shone this very harsh spotlight on Qatar, and and they invited that spotlight. You know, they they, they bid for the World Cup. It's shone this very harsh light on Qatar. To some extent, there has been some progress. Certainly, working conditions in Qatar today are better than they were in December 2010 when they won the World Cup. But there's still so far to go. So I would say if, if people are concerned about that, you know, there's some areas that 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 further progress can be made on. That the first one is that uh, the reforms that have been promised need to be implemented fully. The second one I would say is that the minimum wage should be increased. Uh, the third one is that these deaths that we started our conversation about should be fully investigated. And also something that's not talked about much is that workers who go to Qatar or to anywhere else in the Gulf should not have to pay for their own recruitment. The companies that are employing them should bear that cost. So some progress has been made. A huge amount of progress is still to be made. And uh, I, I share the discomfort that you have uh, about you know being involved in the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, it almost feels like we're getting to the point. I mean, we're really, we're long past that point. But is there any situation where this World Cup can actually be staged in kind of a, a morally acceptable context? What, like, I mean, can, can enough be done in the meantime? Well, I don't know is the honest answer. And the judgment of that comes down to somewhat to your personal perspective and views and, and, and the way you look at this from an ethical perspective. Uh, there is scope, there is time for more pressure to be uh, applied. But as I said, you know, almost all the infrastructure of the World Cup is in place and it has been built with the kafala system in place and with all the problems associated with it in place. That can't be undone. Connected to all that, and I suppose it's reflective of how all these questions overlap, uh, but one thing I found when, say, I've been writing on this on this World Cup, or say on Qatar's ownership of, Man of Paris Saint Germain, or Abu Dhabi's of Manchester City, or any various similar situations, is that there's always that kind of that counter argument that it's actually double sided. So, wh whereas I mean, m my view would be that you know that essentially this has proven an endorsement of Qatar by giving them the World Cup. There's always the counter argument. Oh that it's just led to more highlighting of the various problems in the country. It's caused some change. And as you, as you say, it, I mean, it, the, the situation is marginally better than it was in December 2010. But, I mean, it's from, from my perspective, I'd be curious what you think about this. It still feels like no matter the highlighting, no matter the criticism from some journalists or from human rights groups, the benefit to these countries still greatly outweighs that. Which is which again is why it's such a moral question and, and such a question based on the ex the extent of potential or hoped for reforms. Well, let me tell you about the limits of these reforms, uh, which which doesn't answer your question directly, but I think is relevant to it. Uh, two weeks ago, a Kenyan security guard working in Qatar, uh, a young man who wrote blog posts about his life as a worker in Qatar was detained by the security services in Qatar. He's currently, as I speak, 
uh, detained in an undisclosed location. No one knows where he is. We're not clear on what charges he's been detained under. And the Qatari authorities have said very little about uh, whether he will be released or, or, or what he will be charged with. Now, I find it deeply disturbing that a migrant worker who wrote honestly and movingly about the challenges he faced working in Qatar has been detained, most probably because of what he wrote. And you can introduce all the reforms you want in law, but if you're still going to detain workers for speaking plainly and clearly about their experiences in Qatar, there's a long way to go before the reforms are, you know, become really meaningful. There's also another element to that story that I find quite unsettling because, I mean, even say, say in the last few months when I've covered um, issues like the Norwe- Norwegian players protesting or, or, or talking or talk about the, the various problems still in Qatar, you always get a lot of pushback, a lot, you know, and then a lot, a lot of um, uh, a lot put forward to you about reforms actually being made. But it's remarkable if if this is a country and say a World Cup that is serious about attempting some sort of improvement when you know the spotlight of the world is on it. It feels so brave. I mean, obviously, as as independently uh, unsettling and tragic as this as this story is, it still feels so brazen that it's happened with a greater spotlight in Qatar than ever before. It is. On the one hand, uh, you think, why on earth would the Qataris do this? Why would they detain uh, this young man? I want to mention his name is called Malcolm Bidali. Why would they detain this young man uh, from what appears to be just because of what he was writing? Uh, I think it's worth remembering that Qatar is an authoritarian regime. It's not a democracy. And there are different people involved in that regime who... um, might be insulted by what someone say. The different departments in Qatar are not necessarily talking clearly to each other. Uh, I would suspect that there are people within the Supreme Committee organizing the World Cup who are very uncomfortable with uh, Malcolm's detention. Uh, so there are there are things going on behind the scenes that we don't know and we cannot know. Um, but from our perspective, uh, a worker who wrote about his experiences in Qatar has been detained. It appears he's been detained because of what he wrote, and that is uh, a shocking on many levels. Yeah, I, I, and again, given I suppose what had been the heightened pressure from from two just two months ago, it, it just feel it feels remarkable that that it's happened now. But I suppose reflective of the uncomfortable situation we're in. Yeah, I agree. Just on that, I suppose, um, what have you made of the reaction within football itself? I mean, when the World Cup qualifiers uh, kicked off a few months back and the German players and the Norwegians and and, and the Dutch uh, made a protest uh, in support of workers' rights in Qatar, I thought that was pretty remarkable. Um, takes quite a lot to you know push sports stars into making that kind of statement and I think it was a very very powerful statement uh, the the football associations behind them appear to be slightly more reluctant to make that kind of statement um, but it's definitely caught the attention of the Qatari authorities I think they're somewhat spooked by it and that's why they 
they've, they've tried to push back on some of these issues and they've tried to uh, talk up their reforms. Um, you know, if it results in, in, in making sure those reforms are implemented fully and quickly, that's fantastic. Uh, time will tell on that. There are, there are two big questions, and almost, they're almost really big ethical questions uh, that have come out of this. One, uh, and they're, they're, they're difficult to answer, uh, but I suppose again to answer this, one is how much players should actually enact their agency to speak out or their or to, to use their, their, their authority, their, their status. And B, I suppose, what do you make of the question of whether they should actually boycott the World Cup? Um, this is something that's come up a lot. I mean, we, we even raised it in a, in a press conference today, Gareth Southgate. And the constant answer is always that it's almost unfair on players who might get one, that one chance to play in a World Cup, something they've always dreamed of, and it just happens to be a World Cup with a deeply problematic context. Um, but, of course, that doesn't take away the context. Where, where, where would you stand in those questions? Yeah, they're really difficult, aren't they? And, and, and you know, it's not for me to get on my high horse and say what individual players should be doing. On the one hand, I understand that I think it's unfair to, or it's, it's, it's difficult to, to you know, pick out individual players and say, you know, what's your answer to this? But then, then again, if you look back in history, you know, sports stars, uh, be it uh, Tommy Smith in, in, in Mexico Olympics or, or in any other uh, context, uh, um, uh, be it through Black Lives Matters, have and continue to make very powerful statements because of the platform they have. Should the Qatar World Cup be boycotted? I'm a journalist, I'm not an activist. Uh, my, my position would be that there is still an opportunity to push for greater reform in Qatar. There's some clear things that uh, sports association, football association, football players could be asking for. If they feel uncomfortable demanding a World Cup, then why not demand an increase in the minimum wage? Why not demand an investigation into sudden and unexplained deaths in Qatar? Why not demand that the reforms are fully implemented? There are very clear and specific demands that could be made, and I think they are reasonable, and I think anyone could pick up on them and, 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 and speak out on them. I suppose that's almost a bigger question, isn't it? It's not about whether, um, whether players should specifically speak out strongly. But it's almost to flip it around, whether it's actually good enough for people who maybe who maybe or will likely be traveling to Qatar to stay completely silent on it. Because there's so much information out there now about this. And while players don't necessarily have to go strong, they I mean, they, they do they do have uh, a position where they can actually ask even for some small gestures without without them necessarily taking on too too much of a responsibility that they're uncomfortable with. Yes, uh, I agree with you. Um, uh, although I, th I, you know, I think the issues that I've mentioned are, are, are not very yeah. complicated issues. You know, yeah, the minimum wage is 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 one dollar thirty an hour. It's not difficult to speak up on that. Um, there are uh, hundreds, possibly thousands, of sudden and unexplained deaths. It's a, quite a clear and specific ask to make. Uh, so mm. you know, I think there are ways uh, that. People can speak out on this issue that that would not that is not 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 make them too uncomfortable, uh, but actually could have an impact and draw attention to some of the 
the problems that continue to exist in Qatar from the perspective of workers' rights. Just on that as well, on issues like the minimum wage, um, and I suppose some of this question is ultimately about the mechanics of the Qatari state, but how easy would it be for the uh, the authorities to basically unanchor this system in that way, to actually address these reforms? I mean, because surely given the wealth of the country, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be that, it shouldn't be that much of an issue, or is it just, is there kind of, are we talking about cultural forces here, or or what, what is the context? The reforms that have been introduced have been introduced quite painfully. Uh, you know, you, you, Qatar is a small state, but there are different competing forces within it. And, you know, clearly there's the business community that, that is reluctant to, um, uh, you know, suddenly have to pay much more than they were paying. Uh, the Shura Council, which is like an advisory body in Qatar, has already pushed back a little bit on the reforms to the Kabbalah system. So there are competing forces within there. And so, uh, you know, the, the reforms that have been made have been made in the face of opposition, and that opposition continues to be in place. But that's almost the same in any country, isn't it? So uh, uh, that's why I say, you know, what happens in the next few months and years is, is really important to keep an eye on because these reforms need to be implemented fully uh, if they're actually going to benefit workers. I mean, from, from what we're talking here, and I, I, apologies if this is an exaggeration, but from, from the way we're saying it, I, I don't think it really feels it, in that it feels this next year and a half is crucial to the short to medium term future of Qatar and maybe it's a lot of its internal working structures but also the legacy of FIFA in that if FIFA squanders this opportunity as well, can it ever again be really taken credibly as any sort of force for good in the way so many press releases put forward? It, it does feel like, I mean, beyond all the previous discussions, but because of what can happen next, it does feel a really juncture World Cup, both for a state and, you know, w one of the world's most prestigious sporting bodies. Possibly, if you're optimistic. <laughs> On the other hand, the World Cup is being held in Qatar. The next Winter Olympics are going to be held in China. Uh, the previous World Cup was held in Russia. Uh, I mean, authoritarian, st authoritarian states uh, see these mega sporting events as opportunities to uh, not just promote the sport, but to promote themselves and their brand and, and, and the, the regime that runs them. So uh, I'm not overly optimistic that... Uh, 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 this is a, a kind of watershed moment for FIFA. Uh, I, I, I'm just not. I suppose it, just from what you're saying there as well, there is a connected problem as well in that these these events they're now they're now I think mega events. I think you said that have grown to such a size that it actually means that some of the states that can actually host them are capable of hosting them quite comfortably. They're only capable of doing that because of because of their nature, because of their authoritarian nature, and because you know a certain, a certain, a certain willingness to invest uh, that isn't available in in more democratic states. Well, that may be the case. I mean, certainly Qatar is is, is uh, often said to be you know the richest country in the world per capita, and they have huge uh, uh, oil and particularly gas resources, which have to some extent bankrolled this World Cup. But I'd also say one reason Qatar have been able to build uh, 
the vast infrastructure to support this World Cup. A new airport, new roads, new hotels, in fact, an entirely new city, new public transport systems, is because they can employ thousands of very, very poor people at very, very low wages. It's not just about their access to vast reserves of natural wealth. Uh, it's, it's about their access to vast reserves of cheap labor. Mm. Um, and I suppose, as a, a follow-on from that, how do you think, what, what would Qatar see as a success as regards this World Cup? Is it, is it actually just hosting it? Hosting it with, with relative, relatively little pushback? Yes, I, I guess so. I mean, there, cer- certainly there are uh, elements in, in, in the Qatari authorities who, who will talk about the, the, the legacy of improved workers' rights, not just within uh, Qatar, but within the region. Uh, time will tell whether that's really the case. Um, but this is a great opportunity for them. It's the first time such a mega event has been held uh, in the Arab world. And uh, it, it, will, it will transform, I think it already has transformed the way they are viewed in the region and across the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose I'm even thinking about it from a kind of media perspective myself, because obviously uh, the, the, the question has come up for us as well, where, where is, where, whether we should boycott it. And having spoken to a few people in human rights groups uh, and various people who work around the area, the answer is n- no, I suppose, for the, for the main reason being that if questioning journalists don't go, it allows a kind of a, a sanitized image or basically a public relation friendly image of the tournament to be put to be put out there, and I also suppose there's the principle of that journalists shouldn't really uh, boycott these tournaments in principle. But I suppose, like I mean, this kind of gets to what we're talking about as well in terms of this potential legacy of the tournament, doesn't it? And and who goes and and what image is left? Yes, from the point of view of of, of the media and journalism, I think it's important that people do go. Uh, I just think it's important that people go and report on the whole story. Uh, don't just interview the players inside the stadium. Interview the security guards who are standing outside the stadium. Mm. Don't just, uh, you know, interview FIFA officials in their hotel. Interview the people who come and clean your hotel room every day. And that will give you a rounded picture of what's going on in the country. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something I have to say. It's something that struck me a lot. Again, again this if or when I go, it'll be my fourth World Cup. And every previous, so the ones I've done are South Africa, Brazil and Russia, which actually all had, of course, some moral questions that were of their own and, and various issues. The true similar questions, if not quite to the same degree as Qatar. But there's always this kind of dynamic in a World Cup where journalists get there and then there's almost a little bit of a kind of romance with the host country and they talk about how how warm the people are, and you know, oh, things things aren't so bad here. There's a little bit, there's a great close now. Whereas it feels like, given this specific context, and given where, as we've already discussed, the type of infrastructure we're staying in, and what uh, what it's come out of, that media has to be particularly mindful not to fall into that in this regard. Or how how would you see it? Uh, yeah, I'd I'd totally agree with you. Uh, the difficulty is, I mean, you know, if you're a journalist covering the World Cup, you're going to be very, very busy and editors are going to be asking for stories about football. You know, have you got space and time to, you know, go out to the labor camps at the end of a long day? Uh, have you got time to 
you know, stop on Qatar's Corniche and talk to the men who are who are doing the gardening under the under the extreme heat. And in November there will not be extreme heat. But it's 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 I just think it's important that people who go there uh, ask those questions because here's the interesting thing: when, for example, people in the Guardian or when I have gone to uh, investigate the situation of workers in Qatar, when you actually talk to to workers directly uh, in private, uh, inevitably you hear stories of the type I've described: mm-hmm. uh, very high recruitment fees, uh, very low wages, uh, very long hours. And I think it's important to tell that story too. Well, I was just just to bring it to a close with two last questions, which connected to exactly what you're talking about there. I don't know if you saw a recent video where uh, Xavi Hernandez, the f- uh, former Spanish international, a hero of the World Cup, won it in 2010 with Spain, one of the greatest ever players. And of course, he's been a, ma- a coach in Qatar for some years. And part of that, of course, is that he's been um, speaking very positively about staging this World Cup. And there was a video, I think it was on French media recently, where we almost had this, this you couldn't have a more, a, great, a, a more illustrative microcosm of the entire situation where I think some journalists attempted to talk to some workers and basically they were directed to talk to Xavi instead. And it's almost that kind of, that contrast between the great show and the glossiness of football between this underbelly that really, or it's not even an underbelly, it's, it's going to be in people's faces, I suppose, that, that really warrants a very hard looking at. Yeah, uh, which is why uh, when I've been reporting from Qatar, uh, I've been there quite a number of times over the last seven, eight years, uh, I don't go on official tours. I go independently. Uh, I work quietly. Uh, I visit workers and talk to them privately. And I think that's the only way you can get an honest picture of what's going on. Well, actually, just on a, if for, for people traveling over or even for, for, for football journalists or for general media going over, how, how capable do you think people will be of doing that during this World Cup war? Um, I suppose, how controlled will the entire conditions around the World Cup be? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't know the answer because when the actual World Cup is is, is underway or perhaps just before it, it, it gets underway, I, I don't know what the, the reporting environment would be like. Um, on the one hand, uh, to give Qatar some credit, you know, I've never been harassed when I've been there. I've never been a barred entry. And uh, I, I find it easier to report in Qatar than, for example, in the UAE. Uh, on the other hand, uh, journalists have been detained. Uh, human rights activists have also been detained. And as I've explained already, you know, Malcolm Bidalia, a, a worker, uh, uh, has been detained, most probably just for speaking out on his experience in Qatar. So uh, I don't know what the environment will be when the World Cup starts. Uh, uh, I just can't say. Mm. Uh, just, just, just to finish up, um, and I thought bring bring this to a head, how can listeners join in in raising awareness on this issue and adding pressure to the Qatari government? Well, listeners who are probably human rights fans or uh, football fans uh, can call for some of the things that I've outlined. And I think these are very specific and very uh, reasonable requests. Uh, let me repeat them once more. Uh, increasing the minimum wage, fully implementing the reforms, investigating sudden and unexplained deaths. And the fourth one, uh, demanding uh, that workers do not pay for their own recruitment to Qatar. 
Um, and I think, uh, you know, from the grassroots level, uh, the European Super League has shown that uh, mm -hmm. big players in football can and will respond if enough people are mobilized and mobilized in the right way. Uh, and so, you know, they, they, there is still scope for that, uh, that to happen. Just to bring the, the conversation to a close and almost full circle in that regard, that mm. almost feels the absolute key to this, isn't it? It's about, and I, I, again, as we've seen with the Super League, it's, it's, it's about noise, but it's also about maintaining that momentum, isn't it? Because I think I, I've seen it myself, the history of the kind of the news cycle and, and specifically the football news cycle is that it's too easy for these issues to dissipate. And even it's felt like some of the power that came from the initial Norwegian and then German and Dutch protests in March have just kind of faded away. But I know there's going to be World Cup qualifiers in, at the start of June. Um, in fact, there's going to be some Asian Cup qualifiers, or sorry, some Asian World Cup qualifiers held in uh, Dubai. But at the same time as, that, as they're happening, the European Championships will kick off. So it almost feels like it's a bit too easy for for the pressure to be focused, to focus enough to maintain momentum. Yeah, you're right. And the remarkable thing about the European Super League is that the whole thing was kind of uh, started and finished within a matter of days. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would like to finish on a, a, a slightly positive note in the sense that, you know, that there has been some progress in Qatar uh, and in the region. For example, Saudi Arabia has also dismantled, to some extent, the kafala system. There is a... The, the tide in favour of workers' rights is going in the right direction. There's lots further it can go, but it's going in the right direction. And it's going in the right direction partly because of uh, media reporting, partly uh, uh, because of human rights work, and partly because individual people care about these things. And when individual people speak up, uh, progress and change can happen. Well, Pete, I, I thank you for a, a hugely instructive, uh, if occasionally complicated, uh, but, but very engaging conversation. Thank you so much. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thanks. You too.